2006, March 1st. Today is Lecture 38, the first three minutes, which will begin in just a moment. All right. Now, good morning and welcome to Lecture 38, the first three minutes. In the last two lectures, we've described the Big Bang model for the expanding universe. We started out with the basic idea on Monday, and on the course of Monday through yesterday, showed you the three observational pillars of the Big Bang model, namely the expansion of the universe, the mix of primordial elements that come out of primordial nucleosynthesis when the whole universe was so hot for a brief period, between a second and three or four minutes, it could actually make things like deuterium and helium and lithium, beryllium and boron. We can see the products of that period, and in fact we find those products in about the proportions we expect for the rate of expansion that we expect from both the current rate of expansion and what we think the history of that expansion is based on the amount of matter and energy in the universe. We also saw the other really spectacular confirmation of the Big Bang model, namely the prediction that when I look out into the universe, I should still see the relic black body radiation from the phase when the universe was hot, dense, and opaque. The universe became transparent at a temperature of 3,000 degrees Kelvin when it was only 300,000 years old. By the present day, that radiation would have redshifted by a factor of 1,000, and I should see space filled with 3 degree Kelvin blackbody radiation. And that, in fact, is what we see. It's 2.725 it's plus or minus 0.01 Kelvin, in fact. It is the most perfect blackbody we have ever seen. We cannot even make a blackbody that perfect in the laboratory. So, Having established now, this gives us a great deal of confidence that this physical picture for how the universe evolved is in fact a correct one. So the question now becomes for today, what, does, what can we use this now to talk about what the past of the universe was like in detail, and tomorrow we will explore what would the future of such a universe be like. So today I want to concentrate on the first three minutes of the universe to today. I want to ask what happened just after the very beginning all the way through the earliest hot phases of the universe. It's a marvelous story because what it turns out is that in order to understand the physics of the very large today, we actually have to be informed by the physics of the very small, particle physics. People would never have believed me 20 or 30 years ago to say that elementary particle physics would have anything to say about cosmology or vice versa. In fact, we find today that there's a wonderful marriage of the two ideas. We have to understand both to understand the whole universe. Much of today's lesson is based on what we know about particle physics combined with what we have learned today about the expanding universe. So the key ideas today are as follows, and I apologize if there's a lot of words here. We're going to be looking at the physics of the early universe. This is going to be informed by results in experimental and theoretical physics, give us a lot of information of the story I'm going to tell here today. The later stages of this are actually confirmed by observations presently, and the question becomes how far back we can push those observations to learn more about confirming experimentally the story I'm going to tell. From this, what I'm going to lay out is a cosmic timeline. It's going to look like the unification of the forces just after the Big Bang, followed by separation of those forces as the universe expands and cools. This expansion and cooling, one of these separations of forces, leads to an unusual effect very early in the universe that the universe undergoes a period of extremely rapid expansion called inflation, 
which explains an observed fact of the universe that it is remarkably smooth and is nearly perfectly spatially flat on very large scales. That's otherwise inexplicable and a very surprising result of the particle physics analysis suggests that there was an extremely early inflation stage. And we'll see what that's all about here in a moment. Once we get past this, the universe in these early stages is too hot for matter to emerge. Basically, all you get is photons and particles in kind of an equilibrium. But eventually, the universe cools that in successive phases, different forms of matter begin to freeze out. And the material we expect from the universe begins to emerge at these times, starting when the universe was only a millionth of a second old. From that time on, we begin to see the diminution of the role of radiation of photons and the emergence of matter in the universe, finally reaching the epoch of recombination where the universe suddenly becomes transparent and we see the emergence of the visible universe that we see around us today. So we're going to take a very grand view of the universe in today's lecture. We're going to start right just after the beginning and work our way forward and ask what does our knowledge of the laws of physics Experimental physics from particle accelerators and observations of the universe allow us to tell a story of remarkable detail and great grandeur of how we go from the beginning to the present day. If we look around us again today at the universe, we have to sort of imagine what is it like today. It's easy to look around you. It's a very low density place. Space is mostly dark and empty. There really isn't a lot of radiation running around. What's there is extremely cold. It's about 3 degrees Kelvin, 2.7 degrees Kelvin if you want to be more precise. It's also continuing to expand. As we look out in the universe, I see the galaxies all rushing away from me with a speed that increases proportional to distance according to the Hubble law. But if I run the clock backwards on this expansion and I go back 14 billion years, I go back a Hubble time, what I expect to see is the universe was smaller, denser, and a lot hotter, and it's opaque and filled with photons. It's an extremely bright universe in many ways. The sky is literally lit up, not with starlight, but with the light and the heat of the universe itself. The question really becomes to us when we look at this question is how far can we go back with our current knowledge of what we see in the universe, what we see on, the, on particle physics, what our knowledge is of the mathematical formulations of the laws of physics, of the interplay of forces and particles and interplay of matter and radiation. How far can we push the story backwards? How far can we go? Well, to understand this, how far we can go back, we have to take a little detour into the physics of the forces, fundamental forces of matter and energy. Binding energy, we've already defined gravitational binding energy at the beginning of the class. More generically, binding energy is the amount of energy I need to unbind or take apart and break up matter. So for example, if I wish to break up an atom, I have to heat it up until I strip the electrons off the atom. That takes a certain minimum amount of energy. That's the atomic binding energy. Let's say I wanted to take now my atomic nuclei, which have been loosed by unbinding them from becoming an atom, so now they're free nuclei, and I want to take those nuclei of protons and neutrons, and I want to break that apart too. I've got to put a tremendous amount of energy into that, into that nucleus to break apart the bonds of the strong nuclear force. Protons and neutrons, even though we haven't gone into it in this class, are actually not single indivisible particles. They're made up of three particles called quarks. What if I wanted to take that a proton, a free proton, and break it into its component quarks? I'm going to have to use a huge amount of energy to do that, but I could in principle do it. That energy that I have to reach, that minimum threshold, is called the binding energy. Now, if I can define it, a binding energy, 
Remember, what temperature is defined as is the amount of internal energy content of matter. So in principle, if I can define a binding energy, there is a corresponding binding temperature, which would be the temperature of the radiation field, the photons that I would need to destroy energy. If I heat matter to that energy, it literally melts. Okay, the analogy is with ice. Ice is a bound system. It's bound into a solid. What if I wanted to unbind the bonds between the solid atoms inside of ice and loosen them into a liquid? Then I would have to reach what's called basically the melting temperature. I would melt the solid into essentially a fluid state. And then, of course, I push the temperature further and it flashes off into water vapor. A piece of steel is the same thing. A piece of steel is bound together by the electric fields that hold the atoms together into the crystal lattice of a chunk of steel. But I can break those bonds if I put enough heat into the system. What's that heat? It's the melting temperature of a block of steel. It's a high, higher temperature than for ice. That's why steel is solid and water is liquid. All matter has a similar binding temperature corresponding to its binding energy. If I subject that matter to that temperature, it literally melts into its constituent parts. Not into individual atoms, perhaps, but at higher temperatures, the atoms melt into nuclei and electrons. At even higher temperatures, nuclei melt into subatomic particles. And at even higher temperatures still, I can melt those subatomic particles into quarks and leptons and the very fundamental, the bottom, the indivisible particles that make up the universe. So for example, in massive stars, nuclei melt at a temperature of about 10 billion degrees Kelvin. You may remember this going back to our discussion of stellar evolution. There was a phase when the core of a hot star, all the nuclei literally melted. And that was towards the very end, just before the supernova explosion. So we can always melt matter. Now, how much energy you have to put in and roughly what size scale is associated with that binding depends upon the type of matter. If I'm talking about atoms, the stuff we're made out of, this normal state of matter in this room, the binding energy is about 1,000 degrees Kelvin. I have to put about 1,000 degrees Kelvin into an atom to strip its start stripping its electrons off. That turns out to have a size scale of about 10 to the minus 10 meters. That's about the size of an atom. Once I've stripped the electrons off, I'm down to a nucleus. Nuclei are a lot smaller. They're about 10,000 times smaller, or about 10 to the minus 14 meters. But I have to raise the temperature to 10 billion degrees Kelvin, 10 to the 10 Kelvin, before nuclei melt into protons and neutrons. I only achieve those kinds of energies right now inside of stars, or for very brief instances inside of particle colliders, like large hadron colliders, which are called large nucleus colliders, where I literally collide two gold nuclei together. That collision is violent enough to raise the temperature above the binding energy of that nucleus, and it literally comes apart. Deep inside the cores of nuclear explosions, I can achieve this kind of energy. If I can go to even higher energies, on size scales now 10 times smaller, I've reached the scale where protons and neutrons can actually begin to come apart. And the energy scale for that is about 10 times higher, or about 100 billion degrees Kelvin. So it's not much of a step to go from breaking the nuclear, from breaking electromagnetic to breaking the strong nuclear force is a huge step to go from breaking the strong nuclear force into breaking up the protons and neutrons themselves, the really strong part of the strong force, is only a small step. Well, it's 100 million degrees Kelvin. 100 billion degrees Kelvin, excuse me. Finally, quarks themselves will begin to melt back into energy at about 100 times greater than that, or about 10 trillion degrees Kelvin. I can't achieve many of these energies, except maybe for brief instances inside of particle physics, particle accelerators. But in the early stages of the hot Big Bang, 
all of these temperatures actually prevailed. So there will be epochs within the universe when different forms of matter will simply not exist because they will be melted. And they will not begin to solidify out until the temperature drops below their binding temperature. So when I describe each of these phases, it's actually informed by our study of the nature of particle matter. It's just that now those conditions exist throughout the entire universe at that instant, rather than just simply for a very brief period within a particle accelerator on the Earth. Now remember that there are four fundamental forces of nature. These are all the forces that come into play. And so what I'm going to describe to you is an interplay of all four of these forces in the universe. Today, when I look out at the old, cold, very, very low-density universe, gravitation is the primary force. It's gravity that binds the galaxies to other galaxies. It's gravity that gives shape to galaxies, gives shape to stars, gives shape to clusters and superclusters of galaxies. But if the size scales start becoming close, on close ranges, I get the electromagnetic force, which is 10 to the 39 times stronger than gravity. Up in scale is the weak nuclear force, which actually governs radioactivity. It governs the stability of the neutron, for example. It occurs at extremely tiny ranges. You have to get the particles within 10 to the minus 17 meters of each other for the weak nuclear force to be at play, which means inside of an atomic nucleus. And it is 10 to the 28 times stronger than gravity. So even though we call it the weak force, it's actually the second weakest force of nature. It's way stronger than gravity. Finally, the strong nuclear force actually occurs over a range of about 10 to the minus 15 meters right inside the atomic nucleus, but not immediately outside of it. It is 10 to the 41 times stronger than gravity. It is the strongest force of nature. So today, when matter is far apart, gravitation wins, except on scales of you and me, where the electromagnetic force is actually what holds our bodies together. We're not held together by the mutual gravity of our atoms. We're held together by the mutual electromagnetic fields of our atoms. On small scales, the weak nuclear and strong nuclear force are what hold the nucleons into the nuclei of the atoms. But at some point in the distant past, the energy conditions will be right that these forces will actually be the ones that rule. But actually, the story is even stranger than that. Because it turns out that all of these four forces we now have come to believe are actually different manifestations on different scales and energies of one single superforce. It's called unification of the forces. Some of this has actually been observed. The idea is that in the distant past, or at very, very high temperatures, all of the four forces are literally indistinguishable between one another. The interactions between whatever passes for matter and energy at those phases is all describable by a single set of equations. We call it the superforce. It's gravity and strong nuclear force and weak nuclear force and electromagnetism all working together. But as energy cools, as the universe cools off, eventually gravity separates from the other forces. And so I'm left with two forces in the universe, gravity and something we call the grand unification force, or the guts force, for the grand unification theory, as it's called. And for a long time, the electromagnetic force, the weak force, and the strong force are really all together just one thing. And then it cools to the point that the strong force peels away from the guts force and leaves behind the electromagnetic force and the weak force together, which we call the electroweak force. Both the electroweak force has actually been seen in particle accelerators. Steven Weinberg, one of the authors from whom I gathered the title of today's lecture, in fact, won the Nobel Prize with Sidney Sheldon and Sidney Glashow and, oh God, Abdus Salam for discovery, for the determination of the electroweak force, which was actually discovered in, the lab, in the laboratory experiments. 
Finally, when cooling begins enough, the electromagnetic force and the weak force go their separate ways, and I enter an epoch roughly a little between a billionth and a millionth of a second after the Big Bang, and all the four forces that I see today are separate. But if I run the clock backwards, I will see the forces begin to slowly merge together until finally, just in the very instant after the Big Bang, all the four forces were one. So a lot of the story I'm going to talk about for the early phases of the universe will have to do with what happens inside the universe when these forces separate from each other. On their different scales come into the regime, they begin to be lone actors rather than simply a player as part of a larger superforce that they contain within. The cosmic timeline I'm going to lay out to you is basically given, informed to us by results in experimental and theoretical particle physics, as well as modern cosmology. It's a wonderful merger of two very disparate but very active areas of research through the 20th and 21st centuries. For example, particle accelerators allow me to probe matter at states that are very similar to some of the states that we're going to see in the early universe. These instances of exceedingly high density and temperature, which don't occur naturally but can occur when I ram two particles together at near the speed light. Theoretical physics also adds its might to this because theoretical physics is our formulation of how the interplay of forces and matter act at different scales with different forces. They are the mathematical descriptions of electromagnetic gravity, weak and strong nuclear forces, and of the unification of same. Finally, astronomers, people like me, can actually look out at the old cold universe and see evidence of the expansion of the universe. We can see the cosmic background radiation from the early dense parts, and we can see, for example, the, the products of primordial nucleosynthesis, which depends upon the exact mix of particles and interplay of forces at those hot instances when the whole universe can be involved very briefly in fusion. So all of these pieces of information together feed back upon each other, and actually nowadays, it's not crazy to talk about a field called astroparticle physics. In fact, your physics department here, with the astronomy department, has formed a center for astronomy and astroparticle physics, because now it's really not a distinction between what the physicists and the astronomers do in this very question. So let's see what we've put together so far. What's the story we've learned to date here in 2006? I cannot go back to zero. I'd love to go back and say at t equals zero is when the universe was born. I can't do that. And the reason I can't do that is because what it would require is being able to mathematically describe the superforce. When all four forces are unified into a single superforce and one force rules all of nature. I can't do that because I lack a quantum theory of gravity at present. We have the outlines of a quantum theory of gravity. Some people think it's string theory, but it's still poor, so poorly developed that we really can't write down the equations of the theory of the superforce. But we can at least describe what its basic properties are, even if I can't give you a precise mathematical calculation. We do know that before 10 to the minus 43 seconds after the Big Bang, is the epoch when we expect the superforce to reign. At 10 to the minus 43 seconds, we reach something called the Planck scale. This is a scale at which large-scale fluctuations in the curvature of space-time become small enough that gravity begins to separate from the superforce. We think we can identify that scale. We think it's about 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Okay, maybe it's 10 to the minus 44 or 10 to the minus 42. It really doesn't matter at that level of detail for the story. Before this time, in the Planck epoch, all the four forces are unified into a single superforce. So we're down here at the time just before gravity suddenly peels itself away from the superforce. We can't say any more about that until we have a theory of gravity. And that quantum theory of gravity could come next year. It could be the physics of the 22nd century, for all we know at this point. 
It's a very difficult problem and hasn't been solved. Let's move forward. The red line here is now going to show you where we are. We're going to move forward in the universe in time from zero. We're going to move forward and we're going to talk about the time since the Big Bang, T, and the temperature of the universe as it begins to expand and cool away from the instant of the Big Bang at T equals zero. At 10 to the minus 43 seconds, we have the end of the Planck scale. The temperature is 10 to the 32 degrees Kelvin. And again, I put a little question mark next to this because, you know, let's face it, we don't know the exact dividing line probably to a factor of 100 or 1,000, but we're close enough. We know what it isn't, but we don't know precisely what it is. Gravity at this point separates from the superforce, and you end up with a, what we call the guts force. Grand unified force where the strong force, electromagnetic and weak forces are still all bound together into a single force. So now there's only two forces ruling the universe. The universe at this point is a hot, dense soup of quarks, antiquarks, and photons in equilibrium. Quarks, as by themselves, cannot freely exist. The minute a quark comes into existence, it runs into an anti-quark and turns into a pair of photons. A pair of photons that collide with each other briefly form a quark-anti-quark pair, but before that quark can even exist for a time, it turns back into a pair of photons. So if I could watch a movie of the early universe, I would see matter continually switching between photons, matter, matter, photons, photons, matter, back and forth. There's no stable form of matter there's no stable form of radiation. They exist in a kind of subatomic equilibrium with each other. That occurs here at this red line. The universe is just a hot primordial soup. There's no identifiable matter yet. At 10 to the minus 35 seconds after the Big Bang, the temperature is dropped now to 10 to the 27 degrees Kelvin. At this point, the strong force separates from the guts force, the grand unified theory force. When this happens, there are now three forces ruling the universe. Gravity, the strong nuclear force, and the so-called electroweak force. The electromagnetic and weak forces are still bound together into a single superforce. At this point, we actually do begin to understand some of the physics because we see the electroweak force in the laboratory. The discovery of the W and Z particles a few years ago is experimental confirmation that the electroweak state actually exists at these kinds of temperatures and densities. It turns out that when the, super force, when the strong force separates from the guts force, a tremendous amount of energy is liberated at that very second. And when that happens, that rapid separation triggers a tremendously rapid inflation of the entire universe. So the expansion up to this scale from beginning up through the Planck era up to the inflationary epoch has been very gradual. And then all of a sudden, someone rams on the gas. And the, the separation of the strong force dumps so much latent heat into the universe that heat goes into work, and it simply causes the universe to exponentially expand for a very brief period. We call this very, very brief phase the inflationary universe. It grows by a factor of 10 to the 43 in size between 10 to the minus 36 and 10 to the minus 34 seconds old. So starting at about 10 to the minus 36 and ending 10 to the minus 34 seconds, so ending 100 times 10 to the 30 minus 36 later, faster than I can black my eyes, the expansion, the universe grows exponentially in size and then all that latent heat is used up and the expansion basically slows back down to a nice, normal, slow crawl. But in that period, the universe has gone from a sphere to something that looks very, very flat. So just like when we're standing on the Earth, 
we're such a small scale that we are not sensible that the Earth is a sphere. Because if you look around you, the Earth looks flat. It's only when you can see this Earth on very large scales that you're sensible of the sphere. Early on, the universe would probably be spherical in geometry. I'm showing you the two-dimensional version of this because I can't draw in four dimensions. But the rapid inflation means if I'm riding at one of these little points here on the grid, what I would see is the universe around me would look like it was literally flattening out. And that's why the universe looks like it's flat. Why omega zero, the density parameter, is very close to 1.00. The universe is flat because of the inflationary epoch. Furthermore, this causes the fact that when I'm early on, all matter at various parts of the universe are within a light travel time of each other. So how hot they are can be communicated to all the other parts. But after inflation, they're dragged so far apart, they're no longer in communication with each other, but they remember that they were all in a common state. That means that if I look out in that direction at the universe at the cosmic background radiation, and I swing around and look at that side 180 degrees away, there's no way that light has had enough time to travel from that part of the universe to that part. It's only had enough time to travel from me, from, the, from that part of the universe to me. So how does that part of the universe know to be as flat as that part? The answer is because once before inflation, they were close enough together, they were in communication, and then whoof, the expansion was fast enough that they were dragged out of communication, but they still remember that initial smooth state. So when I look out at the universe, why is omega almost exactly one? And why is the universe, the cosmic background radiation, smooth to a part in 10 to the 5 on scales that can't possibly have communicated with each other by light now? They were in communication in the pre-inflationary period. So inflation, even though it's occurring at an almost speculative time scale, explains a huge problem that's otherwise inexplicable in the observed universe today. 14 billion years later, is based on something that happened 10 to the minus 36 seconds into the history of the universe. Now, as the universe comes out of the inflationary epoch, it's getting, entering what's called the electroweak epoch, when the electroweak force is present, the universe is expanding and cooling. Now things begin to slow down because there's a big gulf in the strength of the forces. I have to wait until 10 to the minus 12 seconds, a trillionth of a second after the beginning of the Big Bang. The temperature now drops to 10 to the 15 degrees Kelvin. I can almost begin to use words to describe these temperatures now. 10 to the 15 is 1,000 trillion degrees Kelvin. At 1,000 trillion degrees Kelvin, the electroweak force separates into the weak nuclear force and the electromagnetic force. Now we have all four forces that we see around us today. This is the last time when they're all in communication with each other. The only time now in the present epoch when, all the, when the four forces can even roughly unify is inside of very high energy particle accelerators where I can very briefly unify electroweak and produce the W and Z particles. The conditions now, because all the forces have separated out into their four forces, I now have the divisions between the particle scale, the nuclear scale, and the atomic scales. I don't have the energies where they can exist yet, but the conditions are now becoming right for the emergence of matter from the general radiation soup that the universe is up to this stage. So before this matter as we understand it does not exist, it's not frozen out, but now the conditions are about to become right for matter to begin to emerge. 
The first bit of matter appears one millionth of a second after the Big Bang when the temperature drops to 10 to the 13 degrees Kelvin, when it drops to 10 trillion degrees Kelvin. We've now reached the binding temperature of the strong nuclear force, and quarks begin to combine out of the quark photon soup and begin forming heavy particles that are combinations of quarks. Free quarks cannot exist without other quarks nearby when the temperature is too cold. And that temperature is about 10 to the 13 Kelvin. They form a class of particles called generically hadrons, the most common hadrons of which are protons and neutrons, combinations of three different types of quarks, actually three different up and down quarks. Particle-antiparticle pairs and photons, when I form these hadrons, it's too hot for them to exist freely for a second, so they form an equilibrium where a hadron and an anti-hadron of the, of the same partner annihilate into a pair of photons. Those photons collide, and a pair of protons and antiprotons pop out. So the matter is still kind of bouncing in and out of these different radiation and matter stages, but the quarks have stopped doing that. The quarks have begun to freeze out and condense into hadrons. At this is the point, 10 to the minus 6 seconds after the Big Bang, when matter as we understand it begins to emerge. The temperature's dropped to 10 to the 13 degrees Kelvin. The quark soup era is over. We've now begun to enter the epoch of matter. Now, matter doesn't dominate yet because radiation is still important. Photons are still important. But its time is coming because the universe continues to expand and continues to cool. So what we're going to see over the next few steps is as the universe expands and cools, we're going to drop below the binding energy of the different forms of matter. And as I drop below each of those levels, each of those forms of matter will begin to freeze out and condense out of the hot, dense soup of the universe. If I now move up, and now I can drop powers of 10, at least for the time, when the universe is now 1 one-hundredth of a second old, the temperature will drop to about 10 to the 11 degrees Kelvin. This is the point at which particle-antiparticle pairs, protons and neutrons, can begin to freeze out of, matter, of, of, of the dense soup of the universe. So protons and neutrons decouple from the photons. They actually now begin to have a separate existence. The electrons and positrons, the other parts I need for atoms, have still not frozen out. Electrons and positrons, a positron is an antimatter electron, are in this kind of equilibrium where two photons with the right amount of energy create a positron-electron pair, and then that positron-electron pair later recombines, creating two photons. So no sooner do I make an electron than it smacks into a positron, turns back into photons. No sooner do I have a pair of photons and they collide and form a pair of electrons, if they have enough energy. Neutrinos and nucleons turn out to be in equilibrium. Neutrinos and protons and neutrons kind of dance in and out of each other through this whole phase. And what this does is it makes for this very brief period of the universe the neutrons stable. Free neutrons are not stable today. If I had a jar of free neutrons on the table here, every 13 minutes half of those neutrons would be gone. They would decay into a proton, an electron, and a neutrino. But at this epoch, things are so hot and energetic that the minute a proton tries to turn back, or a neutron tries to turn into a proton and electron, it soaks up another, those protons and electrons. I can run the equation backwards. I can run the reactions backwards. The neutrinos couple in, and free neutrons can actually exist in a stable form. The conditions are right for it because it's hot enough for them. But it's not going to last for long.
So this is what we call nucleon freeze-out. A nucleon is one of the particles, protons and neutrons, that makes up an atomic nucleus. So now I have the constituents to make atomic nuclei, protons, neutrons, plus electrons and photons and neutrinos. I've got all the pieces I need, but it's still too hot for them to exist. So that is now nucleon freeze-out. Now before that happens, before I form nucleons, however, one second after the Big Bang, the temperature will, the universe expands, temperature drops, the temperature drops to 10 billion degrees Kelvin. Remember that number from inside of stars, that's where nucleons begin to melt. The first stage of the formation of nuclei is the neutrinos, which previously have been tightly coupled to matter and were responsible for stabilizing the neutron. Now the temperature drops to the point that the neutrinos begin to freeze out. When the neutrinos freeze out, we call it neutrino decoupling, they actually suddenly find the universe becomes transparent to neutrinos. Remember, if you fire 100 neutrinos into a block of lead one parsec thick, about 98 of those are going to come out the other side. Neutrinos just pass through light, light matter like it isn't even there because neutrinos only interact with matter via the weak nuclear force. Photons would be blocked, gamma rays are blocked by the lead, but the neutrinos just stream on through like it isn't even there. Now reaches the point that before one second, the universe is so dense and so hot that the neutrinos can't travel very far before they hit something and are absorbed and interact in some way. But one, after one second, all of a sudden, it's like a window is opened for neutrinos, and the neutrinos now begin to stream out. That's just like what we saw yesterday with photons, except now instead of a cosmic photon background, it makes a cosmic neutrino background. So in principle, if I look out at the universe, I should be able to see a cosmic neutrino background filling all of space that represents this moment of neutrino decoupling. The problem is it's so hard to detect neutrinos, right? That whole light year of lead kind of analogy there is what makes it so hard. We cannot technologically detect neutrinos of this low of energy yet, but people are trying to figure out how to do it. Some of those experiments talk about using the entire mass of the Antarctic ice sheet as part of the detector. This gives you an idea of how really bloody hard this is. We may have to give up and use like whole ice moons out by Jupiter someday. This is, this is 22nd century kind of stuff, if we make it through the 22nd century. So, at this stage, free neutrons are no longer stable. So the neutrons start decaying back into protons, electrons, and neutrinos. At the end of this stage, what was normally about an equal mix of protons and neutrons suddenly becomes about one neutron left for every five protons. Hmm, we've heard that number somewhere before. This is now setting up the raw materials for the epoch of nucleosynthesis. When the time is three minutes after the Big Bang, the temperature drops to 10 to the 9 degrees Kelvin, a billion degrees Kelvin. At this point, the conditions are ripe for nucleosynthesis to occur, for fusion to begin to occur. And exactly what we saw yesterday, the, what remaining free neutrons, that one out of every five particles, suddenly gets soaked up by the protons and forms deuterium. Deuterium is a proton plus a neutron. Those deuterium fuse together and form a helium. The proportions of deuterium and helium that come out of this epoch, as we saw in the question early today, depends upon the expansion rate of the universe. Does it expand rapidly or does it expand slowly? So we can now use the knowledge of the current day universe rate of expansion to tell us how much hydrogen and helium and deuterium should have come out of 
the period of matter frees out from the hot Big Bang, and we get about the right proportions. We actually play those two against each other so we can constrain what the matter density should be and the Hubble constant and all that good stuff. So we take all of these pieces together and I get a wonderful picture. This particular epoch is very important because this is the first time that I actually have some leftover observational bits that I can see in the current cold old universe today from those initial hot phases. The products of nucleosynthesis tell me what these conditions were like other than just simply playing my physics game in the computer to run a hot initial phase forward. In principle, inflation explains flatness and isotropy and all the smoothness, but you know, it's, you can wiggle out of that. You can get away without inflation. Some people are trying models that don't have inflation, but nucleosynthesis, you can't wiggle out of that because we can look at what the oldest stars are made of, and that gives us our starting point. So even though we cannot see into this epoch, I can see the products of this epoch. I can see the results of this epoch. That's how we know it occurred. So the universe up to this stage starts with the Big Bang in the Planck epoch where all four forces were unified. Gravity separates and there's gravity in the guts force. And this is the period of rapid expansion but no matter as we recognize it. And then the strong nuclear force separates away from the guts force and I have three forces, gravity strong and the electroweak force and that decoupling sets into stage an exponential inflation. The universe goes from really small and fairly curvy to suddenly really big and really, really flat in literally between 10 to the minus 36 and 10 to the minus 34 seconds. It grows by a factor of 10 to the 43. At the end of that growth, the universe cools off enough. The latent heat that was released from that decoupling of the strong force has now been expended, and all the universe has is its internal heat driving it out. We go through a period where matter simply doesn't exist, where then we get electroweak decoupling, and now at this point, we get all four forces of nature. Gravity, electromagnetic, weak, and strong nuclear forces are now separate. Conditions are ripe for the appearance of matter. First, the quarks freeze out. Then the nucleons, the protons and neutrons, freeze out. And then eventually the temperature reaches the point that those protons and neutrons can begin to form the first atomic nuclei. I get nucleosynthesis. If you will, atomic nuclei freeze out. But that period is so short, I can only make from the hydrogen and neutrons helium, lithium, beryllium, and boron. I can't make it to carbon. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron are made in the Big Bang. Only stars can make carbon and everything heavier. Once I reach this point, I've now taken the clock back. This is our picture at present of what the early universe actually looks like. From here, the next stage takes a long time. We have to wait from four minutes to 300,000 years. This era where the universe is hot, dense, opaque soup of hydrogen, helium, a little bit of deuterium, lithium, beryllium, and boron, and lots and lots of photons and neutrinos and electrons. It's too hot for electrons to combine with the nuclei to form atoms. I have to wait until the temperature drops below the temperature that atomic matter can exist. And that temperature is about 3,000 degrees Kelvin. When the temperature drops to 3,000 degrees Kelvin, which occurs at, a at about 300,000 years after the start, the universe, all the electrons combine onto the protons and the, and the helium nuclei and everything else. All of a sudden, the universe which was pre previously filled with a fog of free electrons, suddenly becomes transparent. 
as I look back in the universe, I look back in time, I see this surface in the universe, which was when the universe was opaque at 300,000 years old, and that's the origin of the cosmic background radiation, which was 3,000 degrees Kelvin, perfect black body when it formed. Today, 1,000 times redshift later, the temperature looks like 3 degrees Kelvin, and it's the 2.725 plus or minus 0.001 Kelvin that I see today. This is the earliest epoch where I can actually see with light, because before that the universe was hot and opaque. So all of these pieces come together. What we get is this is where we are here in the cosmic timeline that brings us up from the Big Bang to 14 billion years ago now. This is the time of the epoch of recombination, this tiny little wedge over here on the left of the expanding universe. For a long time, nothing happens. There's just matter slowly cooling. But this is going to become a time of very rapid evolution, because now it's gravity's turn. All the other forces have played a role to this point, but gravity hasn't really done a whole lot. Now it's gravity's turn. What we're going to find is gravity is matter calling to other matter through the agency of space-time. We'll start with a slightly fluctuation, more or less uniform, smooth distribution of matter. A part in 10 to the 5. That's baby's, baby's bottom smooth by any definition. And we're now going to say, let gravity have its role. What happens? It looks like this. This is a computer simulation starting at 13.3 billion years forward. The evolution of gravity is extremely rapid. You begin to form stars. The stars begin to coalesce into galaxies. The galaxies and the filaments and the clusters and superclusters all begin to emerge. So now we're seeing the epoch of matter. We come out of an initial dark age where there are no stars. From the dark ages, the first stars emerge. The first stars make the first supernovae, which make the first elements. And we start beginning to have carbon in the universe. Those form into subsequent generations of stars, which combine through gravity, slowly assembling the ellipticals, the spirals, the irregular galaxies that we see around us. Of those stars that form inside these immense factories, galaxies are factories for making stars, and stars are making factories for making heavy elements. Eventually, the heavy element content of the universe rises to the point that there's significant amounts of silicon, carbon, iron in the universe, so that when stars condense out of the gas, some of those elements begin to condense into solids, and those solids condense into planets, and eventually those planets condense into the place that we live on today. So the universe moving forward from 300,000 years old to the present evolves into the structures that we see today. This is the cosmic time, oops, this is the cosmic timeline. A big bang through the dark ages, the first stars and galaxies to the universe we see around us. We have begun to see the first stars. We're starting to push our technologies to see these levels. But what we really want to ask is, what about the very beginning itself? What about time t equals zero? We don't yet know how to probe the scale. I cannot write down the equations of the universe for this. This may be the astrophysics of the late 21st century or even the 22nd. But we've pushed it all the way back, we think, to 10 to the minus 43 seconds. This is where it came from. Tomorrow we'll ask, where does it go in the future?